0: Hello, I'm Zeb Newworth and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of healthcare. The views I expressed on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, we have the unique opportunity to speak with one of the senior policymakers and leaders in the federal government, Dr. Mina Seshamani, who currently serves as the Deputy Administrator and Director of the Center for Medicare at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. As you'll discover, Mina is brilliant, immensely accomplished, and highly mission-driven, and she's incredibly busy. So at the outset, I'd like to say that I am incredibly grateful for her taking the time to speak with us today on creating a new healthcare. I'm also, just to be totally transparent about it, I'm so grateful that we have experts like Dr. Seshimani who are tackling and managing such huge, critically important portfolios of American healthcare, care. And let's just keep in mind, Medicare covers approximately 64 million Americans with annual payments that are nearly $1 trillion. Those are annual payments of nearly $1 trillion, And it comprises over 20% of all healthcare costs in our country. And of course, as many of you know and are familiar with, there are some serious challenges to the viability of this program. We're dealing with a segment of the American population, the demographic over 65 years of age, that is just growing tremendously. There are over 10,000 new seniors each and every single day. This is not a small bubble of demographic change. It's a multi, multi multi-decade shift that has consequences, not just for seniors, but for every working American and family in this country. And on top of the demographic shift, we're seeing costs continue to escalate already way beyond what the vast majority of Americans can afford, especially seniors. And of course, we're seeing that in the face of coverage that has to expand to meet some basic needs for senior Americans. So let's be clear about this topic. Even if you're not in the Medicare age range, so many of us have parents and grandparents who are, so Medicare affects a lot more than just 65 or million Americans. It probably impacts the vast majority of us. So anyway, I hope I've established just how important this topic is today, and just how important what Dr. Seshamani and her colleagues are doing. And I just want to say a call out for her colleagues. She's got a whole team, uh, an organization that is working with her, and these are all public servants who each and every day do amazing work on behalf of the American public. Now, before I introduce Dr. Seshamani, I'm just gonna take a moment to mention the recent publication of my second book. It's called Beyond the Walls, it's about the mega trends, the humanistic movements, and the market disruptions that are literally transforming American healthcare today. It's actually an odyssey into the courageous entrepreneurs, the trailblazing leaders, and the organizations that are going beyond the walls of our legacy healthcare system to create a much more personalized, effective, and humane system of healthcare. What I love most about the book is that it's not about what's wrong in American healthcare. The book is actually about what's right in American healthcare and what we need to be doing more of. I also wanna finally add that all proceeds from my book are being donated to Feeding America, a nonprofit dedicated to eliminating hunger nationwide. And I mentioned the book because I think it has everything to do with our expert guest today and the work that she and her team have been doing. I just want to add again finally it makes me so incredibly hopeful for the future of american healthcare and the future of our country to have brilliant individuals like dr seshamani who are truly public servants dedicating their careers and lives to improving the public good now dr mina seshamani has a uniquely diverse and deep background as a healthcare executive as a health economist and as a physician slash surgeon she currently serves, as I mentioned, as the deputy administrator and director of the Center for Medicare at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. She is responsible for policy and operations for the healthcare coverage of more than 64 million Americans in the Medicare program and has an annual budget, as I mentioned, of nearly $1 trillion. Dr. Seshimani has led her team of nearly 1,000 people through a critical agenda of initiatives to advance health equity expand access to coverage and care, drive innovation for high-quality whole-person care, and promote affordability and sustainability of the Medicare program, not for just this generation, but for generations to come. She has, as we'll hear, driven bold policymaking in the traditional Medicare Advantage value-based care and drug affordability domains through collaborative engagement with numerous stakeholders. And definitely want to ask her about how she's been doing that She's also the senior official responsible for CMS's implementation activities under the Inflation Reduction Act, which is the largest change to the Medicare program since the enactment of Part D in 2003. Dr. Seshamani is a Johns Hopkins-trained surgeon. She's also an economist, having obtained a doctorate in economics at Oxford, where she received honors there as a Marshall Scholar Prior to joining CMS, she served as Vice President of Clinical Care Transformation at MedStar Health, a multi-hospital system where she developed and implemented population health and value-based care initiatives. Dr. Seshimani also cared for patients as a head and neck surgeon at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital and at Kaiser Permanente in San Francisco. In addition, Dr. Seshamani brings decades of policy experience to her current role, including serving on the leadership of the Biden-Harris Transition HHS Agency Review Team. Prior to MedStar Health, she was director of the Office of Health Reform at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, where she drove strategy and led implementation of the Affordable Care Act across the department, including coverage policy delivery, system reform, and public health policy. I know that took a long time, but Mina, I just can't thank you enough. I think you deserve that sort of introduction, you and your team for what you're doing. How are you today?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you. And thank you for having me.
0: So I'm going to ask you a question, Mina, just to kick this off. Given everything I just said and how much your time is valued and important, why did you take the time to speak with us today on creating a new healthcare? Why is it important to you?
1: Well, it is so important because you know having been in the private sector taking care of patients at the bedside working on the ground it really emphasized to me the importance of partnering across the healthcare system from policy makers to healthcare leadership to on the ground workforce to really drive change in the healthcare system where we need you know from my position now leading medicare We need to be able to hear from people on the ground what's working, what isn't, ideas that they have that can inform our policies, and then when we roll out policies or new programs, really being able to partner so that those policies can take life on the ground. And so that's why it's so important. And I really appreciate the opportunity, Zev, to be able to talk with you and with people listening so that we can cut through the jargon that sometimes is there to really understand what is at the heart of why all of us went into healthcare and how do we work together to address the issues the very real issues that you know were brought forward by the pandemic as well around disparities in healthcare how do we improve access how do we make sure that we are caring for people not just treating their diseases and how do we make sure we're doing it in a smart way so that you're spending the healthcare dollar in the most effective way possible and again that's only possible through real conversations like this
0: so, Mina, I'm having this conversation with you or, or pre-conversation, whatever we want to call it, because of who you are, you know, in addition to just being a stellar scholar and policy expert, you're also an incredibly grounded individual. And, and I've seen that in the interviews you've done before and just even in speaking to you last week. So I'm going to ask you some real questions for me. I have spent a bunch of time really preparing for this interview And one of the questions that came to mind for me, and and I'll tell you, I've even struggled with this myself as being a physician and a physician leader and a healthcare executive, and I've been in population health for years now, but I struggle with this issue. I'm not a policy person. I haven't studied policy. I haven't spent time in the government like yourself. And there are others You know, I think about that come to mind, like Patrick Conway, Andy Slavitt, Mandy Cohen. I mean, folks like you have this unique background and diverse background from the ground up clinicians, you know, in healthcare systems and also in the government, but most of us don't have that experience. And how do we, you know, and I felt this struggle. I mean, I listen to, you know, some weekly or biweekly or monthly updates on policy from companies like Premier or others, you know, try to keep up to date, but it is so hard to understand what is happening at that level, the federal and state level, policy level. And to keep up with it, to know, and then even more importantly, how do we engage with it? And so I'm just kind of curious, you know, given that we're talking about talking about this topic and engaging people and making that connection, as you've talked about, from that 30,000 foot level, all the way to the actual individuals who not only provide care, but more importantly, those who receive care. So what advice would you give me or others who literally, this is just a, a foreign world to us, and we don't even know how to, to keep up with it?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question and I would say it is by engaging through conversations like this, through, you know, the organizations that people are part of, you know, as you mentioned where you can, you know, get information. We are working very hard on our end to put out information. For example, we recently published a blog in Health Affairs on how we are trying to advance more holistic care models, accountable care organizations, a piece that builds off of something that we published in the New England Journal of Medicine about a year ago so that we can make sure that we are communicating what's on the horizon, what are ways for people to engage so that we can hear ideas. You know, it's also very important for us to engage in what we, you know, term technical assistance. And what I mean by that is, being able to have webinars and provide avenues to explain what's going on, how best to take part in a new program or, you know, to support others, right? Where we have this accountable care organization learning network so that even provider to provider, people can share, hey, this is something that worked for me, or this is a pitfall that hopefully you can avoid, you know, given the lesson that I learned. That's also something that we very much want to facilitate.
0: Yeah. Well, I just want to say, I just applaud you and your team uh, for, you know, what you're doing to get you in particular out there. Cause I think you have a unique perspective, a unique voice and a unique understanding Uh, one that is super collaborative. And so uh, I think what you're doing even now in this, and and I've I've heard you in other interviews and I've seen some of your writings, you know, again, I completely applaud what you're doing. And Zen, if I
1: can say, you mentioned it at the outset, it is the team. I mean, I feel so honored and privileged to be leading this team in Medicare. If I can just say, mission-driven, incredibly smart, know this program inside and out, and really putting the people that we serve at the center of everything that they do. And it's really been inspiring for me to be able to come and to say to them, hey, what are the things that you think could improve the way that the healthcare system is working and getting all sorts of ideas from them. And that basically you know, forms the work that we do. It really has been a privilege to work with this group of individuals.
0: I'm thinking about two big areas that I think have generated a lot of change and again I'm just going off of what you've written and said to me but the Inflation Reduction Act I was surprised as you put it some of the most significant changes to Medicare that have come out of the Inflation Reduction Act which became law last August uh, under President Biden what are those changes to Medicare those you know literally you know incredible changes and the other one is the the physician you know payment and how that is also the, uh, the physician fee schedule and how that is also an enabled some changes in behavioral health equity, caregiving, navigation, uh, even payment through Medicare Shared Savings Program. You know, so again, those two seem to be two just incredible opportunities to, You know, to talk about what exciting things and important things are happening out of Medicare. So with that backdrop, please jump in.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Zeb, I would say, you know, it really, as I mentioned, is the honor and privilege and opportunity of a lifetime to be able to lead the Medicare program at this juncture in our healthcare system. Both as we emerge from the pandemic and evaluate lessons learned, I mean, there has been so much that has been disrupted you know, emotionally and personally for many of us, as well as how care is provided that we can learn from. And some of these big changes, like the passage of a new law that creates some of the largest changes to the Medicare program, you know, in two decades. And I think there are kind of three main buckets of areas that I am excited about with the work that we're doing. The first being, as we talked about, as you alluded to, you know, implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act, the new drug law, and how we can really drive affordability, accessibility, and the kinds of innovations for the cures and therapies that people need. I think a second big bucket you also have alluded to with the physician fee schedule around how do we transform care, as I mentioned, so that we can really, you know, open the aperture of how we view the people that we care for. So we view them as people with a myriad of experiences, that impact their health and how can we create those more team based approaches to care that address like the 80% of what impacts someone's health outside of that office visit or you know hospitalization and the third main bucket is medicare advantage so you know you mentioned two of them i'm happy to start with you know the new drug law but, you know this is an example of where partnership has been so critical the law passed in August, on August 16th. So we're you know at the one-year anniversary. And there are very tight timelines to really deliver some monumental benefits to people with Medicare. For example, starting January 1st of this year, 2023, people in Medicare could get recommended vaccines at no out-of-pocket cost. So shingles, for example, where people are paying $200, now it's zero. People who have Medicare Part D would not have to pay more than $35 for a month's supply of a covered insulin product. Again, this is huge. Some people are paying up to $400 for insulin. And I think you know also as a physician, I mean, I was leading our diabetes care management pathway in my prior role before coming into Medicare. And people couldn't afford their insulin. Their diabetes cannot be controlled. And, you know, that costs lives and livelihoods. And being able to deliver those on time really required a partnership with health plans, the health plans who are delivering you know, the, the pharmacy benefits, with community partners to be able to get the word out, to give outreach so that people know that these benefits are available so that they can go and take advantage of it. And also, we laid the groundwork for what I know a lot of people focus on with the new drug law. The Medicare drug price negotiation program, the first time in the history of the Medicare program that we will be negotiating directly with pharmaceutical manufacturers for the prices of some of the highest cost drugs for the Medicare program. We hit the ground running to engage with healthcare providers, patient groups, health plans, drug manufacturers to say, OK, what do you see as the opportunities here? Negotiation happens right now, right? In the commercial space with the Department of Defense, with Veterans Affairs, with Public Health Service. What are lessons learned that we should be thinking about? And all of that has gotten incorporated into the guidance that we put out that laid out how the negotiation process will proceed. You know, and with that, number one, that we are really focusing on the benefit that a drug can bring to populations and to patients and thinking about it beyond that randomized controlled trial that is done to assess efficacy and safety, you know, at the outset. But now these drugs will have been on the market for at least seven years or 11 years. There is an opportunity to understand how these drugs are impacting health in the real world, in people's communities, thinking about things like, is it addressing an unmet need? Is it addressing the different populations, addressing disparities, making care more accessible? Is it something that's easier for a caregiver? So somewhat the the person that that caregiver is taking care of can now be healthier. Thinking about people being able to stay independent and in their homes and not be hospitalized or institutionalized. So it's really provided this opportunity to expand the conversation on what benefits we want for the health of people in our country. Number two, it's a very transparent process of back and forth. And again, these are all things that we got from talking with people on the ground. So I'll stop there. I can go on to like a highlight on the value-based care and physician fee service side as well, if you would like.
0: Well, no, let's just dive into this a little bit. This is huge coming out of the Inflation Reduction Act, this ability to negotiate prices. And I think you've talked about, you know, three domains here. One is capping medication costs. You mentioned insulin, which again over 30 million Americans with diabetes uh, you know many of whom can't afford their insulin. And so the staggering health consequences and the staggering costs as a result of that, I mean, we're literally talking about life and death situation. So those Mm -hmm. those caps on prices are real. And so again, you know, that's one area you could do a deeper dive on. The other one I've heard you mention is the inflation rebate. Again, this idea of of even Mm -hmm. dealing with the the rising costs of medications. And of course, this major issue and major advance of being able to actually negotiate pricing for medications that aren't on generic pricing or don't have biosimilars or competition. And so that notion, as I was reading through some of the literature, it sounds like there are 10 medications that are gonna be proposed about this time in fall. And then there's a long process that goes through and it it won't be actually implemented until I believe 2026. I'm just wondering if you could give us an example of those medications. And I'm also wondering, how much savings are we talking about? Have you, you all calculated the potential for how much this is going to save Americans in the American healthcare system?
1: Yeah, so I can walk through the process. So, And we laid out this process in that guidance that I mentioned, that policy document that we put out. So for the selection of the 10 drugs, this is described in the law, and we are following the law, where we look at the highest cost drugs that have the total gross expenditure, highest expenditure, drugs that are single source, meaning that they don't have competition. And there are a variety of exclusions, like drugs that come from small biotech companies, drugs that are plasma derived. So there are a bunch of exclusions. And basically we pick the top 10 highest spend drugs. So that is a process that we're going through right now. So I can't say you know at this time what those drugs are. By September 1st, mm-hmm. we will announce those 10 drugs. Then October 1st, manufacturers who want to participate in the negotiation process sign an agreement with us. We have gotten comment through our guidance of the content of that agreement. We put out the agreement for people to be looking at. October 2nd, everybody submits data, and the various pieces of data are also laid out in the law, looking at, as I mentioned before, the benefit of a drug as compared to therapeutic alternatives, looking at the cost of distribution and production of a drug, the R&D costs that went into it, the federal you know, funding support that towards those R&D costs. So we'll be collecting all of that data. And then we start to enter the negotiation process where by February, CMS will provide an initial offer. The manufacturers will evaluate, they accept it. If not, submit a counter offer. If that is not accepted, then we can engage in up to three negotiation meetings. Again, this is incorporating feedback from people who have done negotiation in the commercial markets so that we can engage in a back and forth to arrive at what's called the maximum fair price or you know, that agreed upon negotiated price. And those will be announced by September 1st, uh, 2024. And then those prices get incorporated into the Part D program because the prescription drug program in Medicare is a public private partnership where then those prices get incorporated for those health plans that offer the prescription drug coverage for them to be able to then, you know, put in their bids, create their formularies, all of that, so that it goes into effect for plan year 2026.
0: And then, so this is 10 medications, the highest cost with those criteria you outlined. After that, though, you're going to tackle more than 10. What is the go forward?
1: Yeah. So the first year it is 10 drugs in part D. The second year, it goes to 15 drugs in Part D. Then after that, it's 15 drugs in Part D or B, B being drugs that are physician administered. And it goes up to 20 after that. So the number of drugs do increase over the next few years.
0: And just again, stepping back, you were talking of Part D of Medicare, which deals with medication costs outside of those that are actually administered by physicians directly, which is Part B. So how big an issue is medication, is drug pricing in the country? I mean, what percentage of Medicare costs do we spend on medications and how quickly is that rising? Again, trying to understand, you know, how how serious and critical an issue this is.
1: Drug affordability is a huge issue. And, you know, for those of you in the audience who work with patients, I think you would all agree. I mean... I personally, I mentioned, you know, leading the, our diabetes care management program and people who had hemoglobin A1Cs of like 13 hmm. because they couldn't afford their insulin. I had a woman as an, you know, otolaryngologist who came to me, you know, Medicare patient, chronic draining ear, and we were on our smartphones trying to find a prescription that she could afford that I could give to her. So I think, you know, behind all the numbers, There are real people. And yeah, I mean, in the U.S., people spend, you know, two to three times what is spent in other countries and drug affordability is a huge issue. There was a health and human services report put out about millions of people in Medicare who find that they can't afford their prescription drugs. Currently, there's no limit to what someone would spend out of pocket in a year on their prescription drugs. And especially for people, say, on cancer drugs. I mean, those costs can really add up. So it's huge. It's game changing that through this new drug law, starting in 2025, people will not have to spend more than $2,000 in a year on prescription drug costs. And I mean, that will enable people to stay healthy. And it's just the smart thing to do.
0: Yeah, I mean, my understanding, just from a population health background, is medication costs are the number two largest factor in costs in American healthcare. The number one being hospital costs, which, by the way, medications are part of as well. So, it's not third or fourth or fifth on the list. It's it's up there in the top two or three. Would you agree with that or?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think drug costs have absolutely been on the rise, and it is important for us to look at them alongside all of the work that we are doing around how do we provide care? How do we deliver care in a more effective way so that we are keeping people healthy and we are spending the dollar in the smartest way possible?
0: Yeah. I'd love to flip over to another large agenda item you have, which is what we mentioned before this, you know, physician fee schedule and some of the the hospital outpatient prospective payment system rules.
1: Absolutely. And You know, this comes to one of the other big buckets of work around how do we transform care? And again, a lot of the work we're doing is informed by my own, you know, personal experiences. You know, in my prior role, I was leading care transformation for a major health system. And, you know, I led community health and case management. And, you know, as I mentioned, our disease care management programs and the power of, for example, A community health worker being able to go to someone's house and really see what is going on. You know, I was on the leadership of our COVID response. The number of times that one of our community health workers would identify someone who could not isolate properly because of their housing situation. Or there was one instance where there was someone who had had COVID, elderly person was discharged home, only spoke Vietnamese he and his wife and they couldn't figure out how to get to the pharmacy or how they were going to get their medications because of this barrier because they didn't have any family around this community health worker got a translator went and picked up the prescriptions right i mean this is life-saving work that has not traditionally been considered in you know the more traditional view of Healthcare and healthcare providers. And so, being able to incorporate those lessons learned as we think about the entire Medicare program from the foundational, traditional Medicare to more of these, you know, alternative payment models, as we call them, or these care models like accountable care organizations, to our partnership with health plans and Medicare Advantage, and then where there are areas for our colleagues in the you know, innovation center, which is one of the other centers in the centers for Medicare and Medicaid services to be able to test new ways of doing things. So you know, some of what we're doing, some of the bold moves that our team is making is really around changing care in that foundation on the ground. So for example, proposing payments for community health integration services. So that for example, the examples that I gave with community health workers, can that be reimbursed so that it becomes a sustainable model that you wanna encourage because we know that then you can avoid hospitalizations, avoid ER visits, and create more of that population health approach and develop that muscle memory for healthcare providers so they can then engage in the next step of becoming one of these, you know, say, accountable care organizations. We have made some of the most significant changes in behavioral health in the history of the Medicare program, creating a new benefit, the intensive outpatient program. So you have, you know, the acute inpatient hospitalization, Psych Day Hospital, and now you have intensive outpatient programs So you're not left with either you have hospital level care or you're seeing a therapist say one day a week. So we're creating an entire new benefit in the Medicare program, allowing licensed marriage and family therapists, mental health counselors, addiction counselors to become billable Medicare providers so that they can see patients. So again, on the ground, really changing the way that care is provided, care navigation being another example, and then moving to really encouraging more participation in these alternative payment models. So accountable care organizations, groups of providers who come together to be held accountable for cost and quality of care. So they hit quality metrics. And they can generate savings, you know, when they keep someone out of the hospital, when they keep them healthy, and they share in those savings with the Medicare program. We run the Medicare Shared Savings Program, which is the largest accountable care organization program in the country with more than 10 million Medicare patients, more than 500,000 physicians and other healthcare providers in this program. And we've done a lot of work to encourage more participation in this program because every single year of this program, quality metrics are hit and surpassed and savings are generated both for these providers and for the Medicare program. So for example, we are proposing that if a patient sees a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant as their primary care provider, That should be part of an accountable care organization because we know, especially in underserved and rural areas, it's an all-team effort. And so primary care is really about that team. So we want to make sure that we're incorporating that. We're also rolling out a program to provide upfront investment dollars to smaller providers in rural and underserved areas that they can invest in infrastructure, in workforce, in partnering with community-based organizations to address social needs so that they can take part in these holistic care models, because we've seen that they often are the most successful. When you have primary care providers in underserved areas, really taking that more holistic approach to care for their population, they keep them healthy, they keep them out of the hospital. Again, I saw it firsthand. We had a woman who got readmitted to the ED like 17 times in three months Community health worker went to her house. She had COPD. It was because her electricity kept getting shut off. So her nebulizer wasn't working. So the community health worker gets the electricity fixed. She doesn't come to the ER anymore. Like there are simple things like that that can really enable all of us to take better care of our communities. And that's the frame in which a lot of our work is being done in this care transformation bucket.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, again, just want to applaud you and your teams at CMS, you know, so I'll give you my perspective. So I've spent the past at least 15 years working in healthcare systems and trying to redesign care. And focusing on so many of the topics we talked about, integrating behavioral health into primary care and care in general, even the intensive outpatient program, again, so many gaps in in behavioral health. I've spent years promoting and launching community health worker programs, the issue of navigation and care navigators. This is not sort of a nice-to-have if we don't have these things, healthcare will not be optimized. It's great to have a physician and great to have someone, you know, giving you a prescription appropriately, making diagnosis appropriately, the surgical procedures appropriately, all that other sort of stuff. But if you don't have all of these other, and we call them ancillary services, they're not ancillary. They're absolutely integral. And I'll tell you something, in my 15 years of doing this work in various organizations across the country, the biggest challenge, it always comes down to the same thing, which is, wow, no one can disagree. Community health workers change people's lives. They make huge impact. Being able to pay for PAs and and nurse practitioners, care navigation, payment of behavioral health folks, and integration of that, all that, the bottom line is this it comes down to the final thing, which is there hasn't been payment for this. And so we can't do it or we can't do it as much or as well as we'd like to. And so I think you've really unlocked one of the biggest challenges, at least as I can tell, in terms of really transforming care and making it much more humanistic and quite honestly, making it much, much more effective. So again, I, I just want to share my perspective as someone coming at this from the front line in organizations that are trying to launch these programs. you've just unlocked, and you you and your team are unlocking a door that's been closed to to so many of us across the organizations who've been trying to do this work for years, if not decades. so so thank you, and I'm curious what you think about that. I know you spend time on that side as well.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so based on that, I would say it is a call to action for all of us, right? We are putting out these proposals. Number one, we want to get comments from people on these payment proposals as part of this is how we do our regulations so that we can incorporate people's ideas on how this can be most effective. Number one. Number two, as we roll out you know, these kinds of changes, it's exceedingly important that healthcare providers on the ground take advantage of this to then care for people the way that they have always wanted to care for people. And we wanna be able to partner on examining, to your point, Zev, of what the impact is. What is the impact on spending? What is the impact on outcomes? So that we can continue to iterate in a continuous learning environment so that we can continue to improve. And being able to take advantage of some of the changes that we're making so that healthcare providers can become part of these care models where they are linking arms with us and being held accountable for quality, being held accountable for cost, because we all know that's what's gonna drive improvements for the communities that we wanna care for.
0: So let me pick up on that. And this may be a landmark conversation. I know it is for me, and maybe it will be for you and your team, because I, I do think we're talking about the last mile here right now in this moment, which is exactly, and thank you so much again. We're having this conversation because of who you are and, and your new type of leadership that you're demonstrating at the federal level. You mentioned Three things, one, well, first of all, you talked about a call to action. So that's what I wanna spend the rest of the time talking about the last couple of minutes we have here, five minutes or so, the call to action and how we can actually make that happen right here, right now so that the people who are listening can actually take action, concrete action, and then actually share this podcast with others so that others can take concrete action. You talked about number one, providing feedback, to CMS about what's happening now, which is so critical. So to informing CMS. Then you talked about how to be informed and be up to date. Mm-hmm. I'd love to know specifically where we can go. And again, if you you know want to cite some sources or places to go and then I'll put that those links right in the show notes. And so one is to inform CMS, the other is to be informed. And finally that notion of actually doing it, using the tools, knowing hey you now have degrees of freedom you have support you know you have enablement from cms to do these things so that impact and then finally along that the notion of actually then studying it and seeing what that impact is so let's start with you know how can we yeah how can we inform well it's, i think you did it i just repeated it but how can we inform you how can we stay informed where can we do that How can we actually have the impact, actually use these programs, and where can we learn to do that? And then how do we actually be part of the ongoing study? If we can't measure it, you know, we're really lost. And so where would you direct us? And again, there might be others on your team who could help out with that as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, Zeb, this comes back to, I think, where we started our conversation about the importance of that engagement. And you had mentioned our press releases, you know, the press releases that we put out on, you know, CMS.gov and that we distribute widely provide key pieces of information with anything that we put out that we wanna make sure people know about. And we provide like a link of where people can submit comment on it and the deadlines for submitting those comments. So I think that's a good way to be able to get distilled, easy to understand information. We also have fact sheets that then go into, you know, a little bit more detail for those who are interested. And then I think where we have, for example, that ACO learning network that I mentioned, or we do webinars, you know, we try to get that information out as widely as possible so that people can join so they can learn in more depth about the various programs, how to go about you know, participating in a program or how do you, you know, submit a payment? What are the guardrails? So I think there is that back and forth. And, you know, certainly our team, you know, can follow up with all of you more on making sure that, you know, people are on those listservs and getting that information. And I think the last aspect really comes back to, you know, the importance of the evaluation. And, you know, as a, you know, Former health services, academic health services researcher, the importance of being able to ground all of the work that we do in that continual curiosity and humility of seeing what works and what doesn't, and being willing to say, okay, this worked so how do we do more of it how do we tweak it so it's even better and if something doesn't work that's okay because that means you've learned something and you can take the next steps for improvement and that's something that we are doing on our end and that i think we all have to engage in um and that healthcare providers and health plans you know also are involved in
0: so so i'm going to drill down on the action i am going to take action i'll be the first one here i'm going to And if it's okay with you, if you you've sent me some stuff, but uh, I know you've got some of your PR folks on the line as well here today with us who are listening in, if they can reach out to me and I just want to thank them ahead of time and thank them for what they already sent me. But if if they could send me some of those cms.gov press releases that are critically important right now, the ones we've talked about regarding the payment reform and and the inflation reduction act and, and medication, if you could send me specifically some examples, I will post them On the show notes, so everyone listening can click on those links and get to this. Embedded in those are links to fact sheets if you want to go deeper into it. So I will promise to make that step happen. And I'm hoping that folks follow up and look at those and take action on those because I do think you got to start somewhere. So let's just start there. And I'm happy to work with your team any other way. I have to tell you, just, you know, I am so inspired. And I have to say, as much as I've been in this in my various roles, you know, as a healthcare manager, executive, uh, innovator. I tell you, what I've learned in researching and in talking to you and your team and and now in this conversation, so much more inspired and so much more catalyzed to take real action, not just for what you're doing today, but I think for the path you're opening up for the future and for those that are going to follow you in those leadership roles. And so, again, let's make this real and let's act on this. And I I will take that. Wonderful. You know, I'm going to close out in a second because I know you've got something else to get to. I would love again, a public request here to have the opportunity to speak with you again, because there were so many other fundamental issues. I think the CMS 101, I think the, you know, Medicare, Medicare Advantage 101, I think these are such important topics for folks to even be aware of, you know, what is part A, part B, part C, part D of Medicare mean? These are such basic factoids and, and understandings to have. And I'd love to come back and do that. And- I wanna say, I'd love to come back and actually talk about you and talk about leadership. It is for for me, probably the most critical issue right now, I think in healthcare and I think in other social institutions and political institutions in our country, the issue of leadership and the type of leadership we need moving forward. So I'd love the opportunity to come back. I, I hope that's okay with you.
1: Great, I mean, and thank you for having me. This has been a great conversation and thank you to everything you're doing and everybody who's listening.
0: Well, thank you and every podcast i close out with the same message which is incredibly heartfelt first of all i want to thank you again and your team uh, for taking the time to be with us today and for providing just just such an inspiring message for all of us and as i do every episode i'd like to conclude by thanking all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or those of you who are supporting those who are taking care of patients i and we truly appreciate you for what you do and recognize how critically important your work is to individuals to their families to our communities and to our american society this is zev newworth on creating a new health care my friends until next time be well